0: Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word, like newborn babies, that you may grow thereby. For God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, you have revealed your plans to us, you have revealed to us our problem, which is sin, and the solution, which is our Savior who paid the penalty for sin, and that this is not the end result, it is only the beginning of a new life, and that you have spent much of Scripture giving us instruction and examples on how to live the spiritual life. And so, Father, as we continue our study in this important section of Ephesians, uh, chapters 4 and 5 on the worthy walk, help us to understand what you have uh, revealed to us, that we may put it together with other scriptures in an accurate manner, and the result of which will be a challenge to each of us in our worthy walk to be more consistent, to be steadfast, to stand strong and to continue to press on to spiritual maturity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to begin a study today on just understanding what is the filling of the Holy Spirit. And if you read your Bible and you pay attention to what you read in the Scripture, you will notice that sometimes this is translated as being filled with the Spirit, being filled of the Spirit, and filled by the Spirit. What does that mean? What's going on here? And see, we have the same problem that we've studied before when we come to the passages that are uh, relate to the baptism uh, by, with, or of the Holy Spirit, that actually these English prepositions, by, with, and of, all have a certain area of commonality. And so they are translated one way in one verse, and then somebody else is translating a similar verse and translates it with a different preposition leads people to think that there's two different actions, two different kinds of baptism, multiple kinds of fillings, all kinds of confusion results. So we have to take some time to think through what is being said here. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at these different commands that are given in Ephesians chapter 4, 1, down to where we are in Ephesians 4, Uh, 16, 17, and 18. These are five commands related to how we walk, and this isn't talking about physical walking, but walking is a metaphor for how we live our lives, and it's not just physical or overt actions. It's talking about how we think, and we have to learn to think biblically. That's one of the most difficult challenges because You have to overhaul. We all have to overhaul just about everything that we've learned, either in terms of specifics or in terms of its context. Because you can have one group of people, as we're going to see, who are very moral, and they don't look any different from some Christians who are uh, living the uh, spiritual life according to the New Testament. And so it's easy looking at the surface to think that they're doing the same thing. When they're not, they have totally different uh, context for why they do what they do. So we have to learn to think about our, why we believe what we believe and how that impacts our actions, our thoughts, what we say, what we do. And it is difficult to think through some of these things because uh, when we talk about specifics and we make a grocery list of, of things we should do to characterize our behavior, we can easily slip into forms of superficialism and legalism. And yet what the Bible talks about is something that, in terms of the Christian life, goes much deeper than that and calls upon us to uh, think about how we think and why we think the way we think. And most people just have trouble thinking, especially if they haven't had their third cup of coffee in the morning. So we have seen in this immediate context that the shift has gone now to walking in wisdom. This really covers the last part of the section on the Christian walk, which began in chapter 4, verse 1, and extends down through 6, 9, and then it will shift to spiritual warfare. So we are to walk as wise according to this command given in uh, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. And so this is going to be developed through a command in verse 18, where we are commanded to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of confusing views on what that means to be filled by means of the Spirit, and you will probably have heard some of them, and if not, you certainly will. And as we read that command, we see that there are certain results that will flow from the person who is filled by means of the Spirit. The first is an emphasis on biblical worship, What we sing, why we sing, what we sing, and in the parallel passage in uh, Colossians, we are to admonish and teach one another in terms of the content of what we sing. But when we look at 99.9% of what is sung in many contemporary churches today, it doesn't teach anything or admonish anyone, it is superficial and is not very uh, significant. But we live in a world where people's spiritual lives are superficial and not very significant, so it's no surprise that that which this culture produces, the Christian evangelical culture produces, it is not going to measure up to what the Bible says because they have a shallow, superficial, spiritual life. When we read through the lives of the composers of many of the hymns that we sing, and not even most of what they wrote it survives. There are those who have written 2,000, 4,000, 8,000, 9,000 hymns, but we only sing a few of them because only a few really stood the test of time. Recently, I read that, that the... Uh, average lifespan of a contemporary chorus today sung in worship is about 8 months and it does it's forgotten after that and people are like the uh, Peter refers to those with itching ears they want to make sure they're singing the latest and the most popular of the worship songs but I don't see that as a qualification anywhere in in the scriptures another result is that there's gratitude we live in a culture that is dominated by un or ingrateful, ingratitude and ungrateful people. And we see this in not only older people to a some degree, but we see it a lot in the young, that they're just not grateful for what they have. And so part of the things that we should recognize in Scripture is that as we walk, as we live our lives, we are to be characterized by humility. And humility is not saying, oh, look how many things that God has given me, how great I am, what I can do with all these things. Humility is reflected in gratitude, that we recognize we don't deserve anything that we have that God has given us, and it's all grace, and it teaches us to have an accurate view of who we are. So we are to be grateful for, for all things, the bad and the good and the ugly. So we're to be also to live in mutual submission to one another in harmony. This goes back to the characteristics of a worthy walk, at the first part of, of Ephesians 4, and it is a walk that is in unity. And you can't have unity unless you have humility. And so there should be this willingness to get along with one another, and that does not mean sacrificing doctrinal or biblical accuracy in the process. That is how many uh, people read this, is, well, let's not disagree over these little things. Well, you can disagree without being disagreeable, but sometimes we have to disagree over error in theology or in the use of Scripture. And this is an overall command that is then illustrated through various commands that Paul gives related to the Christian marriage and Christian family, one of the greatest passages in the New Testament on the second divine institution of marriage and the third divine institution of a family. So last week we looked at the opening to this section in verses 15 and 16 and I coupled it with the next two verses because I think they need to be viewed together that they are that verse 17 and 18 picks up on is a contrast it starts with the phrase do not be unwise And the concept of wisdom comes from the end of verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now I want you to notice again that I've said this many times, that you have these contrasts in Ephesians 4 and 5. You either walk in the light or you walk in darkness. You either walk in wisdom or you walk as a fool. Other passages talk about walking by the Spirit or walking according to the sin nature, or abiding in Christ or not abiding in Christ. The Bible sees these as mutually exclusive ways in which a believer might walk. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about how we think, how we talk, how we live. And that not only what we say and how we say it or what we think and how we think, but it's grounded in an understanding of what God the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives through his word. So we have the um, uh, negative uh, command that comes up in 517, do not be unwise. Uh, but the contrast is to understand, and that is a word that has to do with our mental faculty of comprehension. We have to think about things. We have to think about what the Bible says. We have to think about it to determine, well, first of all, have I correctly understood it? Have I correctly interpreted it? Because if you haven't noticed, there are Different ways in which people have interpreted certain things in the Bible, but there are some rules for interpretation. We're going to talk about that a little later this morning. So, where we see this contrast, don't be unwise, don't be foolish, but be, but understand. So, a characteristic of the person who is foolish is that they are. Um, uh, they are not walking with understanding, and by understanding contextually, that means understanding, understanding the word. So the opening part talked about, uh, walk, walk not as fools, but as wise by redeeming the time. So that we look forward to this. As um, a means of walking wise, so we looked at some of the uh, Greek here that's in, that's important. That we are to pay attention. Uh, then that we walk carefully. And down below this bottom panel here is the adverb that's used there. And in a lot of translations, I pointed out that it is uh, applied to the initial. Command, which is to watch out, to look, to beware, something of that nature. And then it's said to watch carefully. It's not talking about watching carefully, it's talking about walking carefully. That we need to be careful how we walk, diligent. We need to look at how we walk, not carefully look at how we walk. There's a difference. So it's always important to get the modifier with the right verb. So this is what we talked about last time, that we are to pay attention then that we walk carefully or accurately. Not as fools. The the fool does not walk carefully, does not pay attention to how he lives his life. But the wise person does. And then we saw that that participle to redeem is a an instrumental participle, and we walk wisely by redeeming the time, because the days are evil. The world is evil. We're surrounded by a lot of evil. It's always been there, but in recent decades, it's become more and more visible to us. So we talked about what the Bible says about wise management of time, and so just in a quick review I pointed out from Psalm 90 that the time we have here on earth is limited. We have, by God's grace, we have three score and ten or 70 years. And if by strength we have 80 years, then some today may even push the boundaries beyond that and go into their uh, ninth decade or even beyond. And so we need to pay attention to what God has given us, this Just as we have to pay attention to the financial resources that God has given us, the physical resources that God has given us, the health that God has given us, and to use it uh, responsibly, we need to recognize that God has given us a certain amount of time, and we should use that for his glory in a responsible way. So this is a limited resource and I talked to someone recently who had just turned 70, and I know many of you may have passed that milestone. And it's amazing. I realized this. The day I turned 70, it was like there's an end coming. There's a sudden realization that that hard stop is close. It's there. And and you, the day before, you don't realize that. It's amazing how you just hit that number, and boom, you realize I've got a limit really limited amount of time coming. So we must be second point was we must evaluate our priorities. Scripture in Matthew 6.33, Luke 2.52 give us an idea of where we should define our priorities in terms of our spiritual priorities in relation to the Lord, our physical priorities in terms of taking care of our health and our nourishment, exercise, things of that nature, including sleep. Uh, Favor with God, spiritual life, and favor with man, our marriage, our family, our friends, and our relation with other believers. So I ended by saying that we need to mark out our days and times. In relation to these, we should have goals, goals related to God, goals related to family, goals related to work, goals related to personal, uh, taking care of ourselves uh, in a personal way. And so in relation to God, we need to read the Scriptures, memorize the Scripture, internalize the Scripture, study, listen to the teaching of God's Word. In terms of family, we need to have a time for our spouses, time for our kids, time for uh, developing many things related to family, all of these things. And so in each, terms of each of these priorities, God first, family second, work third, personal, fourth, we don't always measure out our time uh, proportional to that. We spend most of our time working. But that is, and we need that because we need to be able to buy food and pay the bills and a place to live and all of those things. But in each of these areas, we need to have a plan. How do we approach? God? How do we approach our time with family? How do we approach our work? How do we approach that personal time? What are our goals and objectives in each, uh, each category of priority? And so that demands some thought. And uh, p- some people obsess on that. I think that's just as wrong to go to that extreme as those who ignore it. And we need to have balance because we always have to have a measure of flexibility the way life goes. So that brings us down to verse 17. Verse 17 says, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So that understanding of the will of the Lord means comprehension and we learn the will of the Lord by studying his word. But I want you to notice that that is connected then to the next verse. Now, this is a very important verse. It's a verse that is often misunderstood and misinterpreted, so we need to think about that to, uh, to some degree as we go through this. And in the course of this, I want to take some time to just understand um, the context of this. This is something that is, um, may get into some detail, but we live in a world today where there's a, a lot of confusion uh, about these things. So the concept and the contrast between wise and unwise is then developed in relation to this command to be filled by means of the Spirit. So one of the things we have to address as we address this is, well, what exactly is the significance of this contrast? So we'll take some time to look at that. Why does Paul suddenly say, don't be drunk with wine, and connect that to being filled by the Spirit? And what you'll discover is a lot of people draw a connection between the two in terms of how uh, alcoholic beverages may influence your thinking, cloud your thinking, may cause you to do things that you wouldn't uh, normally do. I don't think that is what Paul is addressing here at all. It is a little more profound than that, but we will get probably not get to that until until next time. But we have to understand what that means. Then we have to understand what this word filled means. Then we have to understand what the word by means, because some passages will translate it as with, and some will translate it as of. And each of those English prepositions, as I stated earlier, have an overlap in meaning, but they do not necessarily accurately reflect the context here, and what happens in our culture is people bring to the verse their theological presuppositions, which are shaped by some rather strange ideas, and so we have to understand that a little bit, and one of the reasons that I think we need to spend time on this is because, uh, number one, there's confusion about this, as I've stated already, There are different theological positions that are not apparent when people talk about this. So we need to understand how those theological presuppositions affect it. So we need to understand something about those theological presuppositions. And those theological presuppositions come from a basis of how they want to interpret Scripture. So we have to understand some things about how to interpret Scripture and the history of interpretation, because we have a lot of theological baggage that people bring to the reading of Scripture and the understanding of Scripture that really goes back centuries based on fallacious views of interpretation. So I'm trying to break this down for us this morning so we can get a little better handle on this, uh, especially in light of some things that are going on in our world today. It's interesting that in the last three weeks, I have had several people approach me in light of a new position that has, it's not really new, but they're, it's raising some concern, it's getting some visibility, and that is a hyper-grace view. That's the new term that's being applied to a very old position. A hyper-grace view that oh, you don't need to confess your sins, you just live your life, and Christ is going to uh, cleanse you of all your sins, which is a misuse of 1 John one seven. but we'll get into that. And so I've had two or three people address that, and then from a slightly different perspective, there's a lot more visibility suddenly being given to um, a couple of videos and a book that recently came out. Um, very critical and negative about dispensationalism. And there is a connection between uh, consistent dispensational understanding of the scriptures and a dispensational understanding of the spiritual life. Now a lot of people don't recognize that. I remember in the early early 80s, there was um, among certain publishers, they make they they have these books called their their different views. So you may have four views of divorced and marriage. You have three views on uh, the charismatic gifts. You've got uh, five views on the spiritual life, and another book was uh, I think it was four views on sanctification. They didn't have the same views in each one, so it ends up there's about eight views of the spiritual life, and it helps you to think through certain things, but when this one book came out in the early 80s, uh, it was um, on five views of, of sanctification, and the fifth view was the view that was written by Dr. John Walford, who at the time was president of Dallas Theological Seminary, and was a protege of Lewis Berry Chafer. And he entitled his view the Augustinian-Dispensational View of Sanctification, which is an accurate title but doesn't communicate a lot to uh, people who don't know much about church history. But what's important, what my point in this is that I heard students say, I didn't know there was a dispensational view of the spiritual life. You know, people think of dispensationalism in terms of the pre trib rapture. They think of it in terms of premillennialism. They think of it in, in uh, the distinction between Israel and the church. But they don't think about it in terms of a spiritual life view. But yet, to be consistent with your dispensational presuppositions, there is a distinctive view of the spiritual life. I can give you a simple illustration. This is, uh, As soon as I say this, you're going to go, oh yeah, of course that's true. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 starts off uh, by, it starts off a section in Romans that's going to talk about the, the spiritual life. Romans 6, 7, and 8 focus on sanctification. The first thing that Paul does is he grounds the rest of what he says in chapters most of 6, 7, and 8... On the baptism by the Holy Spirit in Romans six four through six, you didn't have the baptism by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in Israel. You didn't have the baptism by the Holy Spirit before the call of Abraham. Uh, you're not going to have the baptism by the Holy Spirit during the tribulation period, and you're not going to have it in the millennial kingdom. This is distinctive to the church age and. What I just did was say that there are different periods of time in history that God works in different ways with his people, and that is inherent to dispensationalism. And so what I've just articulated is the very fact that we believe that the spiritual life of the present church age is grounded in a unique event that is the sign of the, what makes the church the church is this identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection shows that it's a dispensational view of the spiritual life. But you have a lot of dispensationalists who fall in love with Reformed theology, and they have a Reformed view of the spiritual life, and, and that's what they teach from, but they don't ever give you the kind of information I'm going to give you this morning. And so people get confused. I know that because when I started as a student at Dallas Seminary, that I was under the false assumption that everybody was teaching from the same page, everybody was dispensational, everybody was in agreement with Lewis Be Chafer, and by this time, they weren't. Now they're not as far off, they weren't as far off the beam as they are today, but back in those days, uh, a lot of us came out of a good, solid dispensational background, and we were we trusted our professors only to realize. It took me a couple of years to realize this, that, that the professor I had was teaching a reformed view of the spiritual life, and that's why he didn't, uh, even though we had to read he that is spiritual for class, uh, he did not agree with, uh, fully with uh, Dr. Chafer in his view of the spiritual life. And so that that confuses people, and I'm a testimony to that. So... We get into Ephesians 5:18 and we read this command do not be drunk with wine in which is uh, dissipation but be filled and the uh, New King James translates it be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this causes us to have to think about what do these words mean? And it's translated with but it's an It's a dative case with the Greek preposition in, which can be translated with, but with has has different concepts to it. And so, with the English word with, I might uh, ask somebody to go get me a cup and fill it with coffee. With is describing what is going into the coffee cup, its content. But in Greek, content is going to be expressed through a word that is in the genitive case, not in the dative case. And what we have here in, within numity is the preposition in, E-N, plus the dative of the word pneuma or spirit. So that would incline us to think it's not content. We're not getting more of the spirit. We are indwelt with the Spirit the instant we trust in Christ, and we never get more or less of the Spirit. But we are to be filled, and if this is instrumental, which is what most grammarians indicate, then it means that we are filled by means of the Spirit. It's not telling us what he's filling us with. So that's an important thing to look at. But before we get there, we have to understand that this contrast with being drunk with wine. So we have to talk about some things, and so we have to go through a little background and understanding about what the Bible teaches, in ter- about the filling of the Spirit, filling by means of the Spirit, and just an introduction. So that's about all we're going to get through today. So first of all we have to recognize that the understanding or interpretation of Scripture is going to be affected by a number of factors. Uh, You will hear and probably have heard these different views, and this leaves the sheep confused. And it's not the job of the shepherd to confuse the sheep, but that's what happens a lot of times. And so as a pastor, I have the responsibility of clarifying things and trying to bring a little more light to what is often confusing for people. Recently, somebody observed in a positive way that as we began Bible class all the time, that we always began with the time of silent prayer, the opportunity to confess sin, and that that is not something that they witnessed very much. I remember several places when I was growing up where you would run into that, but not so much anymore. But it's just a pedagogical tool for reminding people on the importance of keeping short accounts. And it flows out of our theological understanding that Scripture talks about the fact that you're either one or the other. But there's a lot of people who believe that you're kind of both spiritual and carnal at the same time, and you're walking in darkness and in light at the same time. You do things for mixed motives. So we have to start with an understanding of the principles of interpretation. And so we have the golden rule of interpretation. And the golden rule of interpretation states that when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning. How do you like that for a Uh, piling up adjectives, at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context indicate clearly otherwise. So when we go back and we look at these commands to walk worthy, we can tell from the context that it's not talking about how we physically perambulate. It's talking about how we are live our lives, how we think, act, talk. And so we understand that it's not talking about it in a literal sense, but like a lot of phrases, it has an idiomatic sense, and it has uh, these these different views. So we have to understand interpretation of Scripture. And we have to be careful as we think through this. So I just want to talk about a few different historical realities. Uh, One issue for us at West Houston Bible Church is that we stand in a certain tradition of understanding the Christian life um, and the church age. We stand in a tradition of dispensationalism. We stand in a tradition that has been heavily influenced by men like James Hall Brooks, who was the pastor of um, C.I. Schofield who mentored Lewis Berry Chafer, who mentored John Walvoord. But they did not always agree on all the details because as they were working out this understanding of the spiritual life, and we see this in other centuries as shifts take place, that it takes a century or two as the details are sort of hammered out, but even though there's some of these minor disagreements, they're within the same uh, the same general g- general framework. So we need to kind of walk our way back a little bit in some of these things. So let's go back to about 200 A.D., okay? Jesus is crucified in 33. The last apostle, the apostle John, dies somewhere in the 90s of the first century, and then after that you go into what's called the time period or the age of the apostolic fathers, now what 's interesting is when you read the Apostolic Fathers, you see a lot of confusion When I teach church history, the key word is ambiguity. they don 't really develop any kind of uh, analytical thought; they just basically repeat phrases of scripture and try to put things together but by the but you can see that they they have a primary leaning towards a literal interpretation, even though there's some elements of allegorical interpretation that are starting to leak in. But by the time you get to um, about 200, you have the development of something called allegorical interpretation. Dr. Pentecost, who taught at Dallas Seminary for many years and well into his 90s, said that the allegorical method was not born out of the study of Scripture, but rather out of a desire to unite uh, to unite Greek philosophy and the Word of God. It did not come out of a desire to present the truths of the Word, but to pervert them. It was not the child of orthodoxy, but of heterodoxy. Allegorical interpretation, as it was developed in, first in the early church, really systematized by a church father by the name of Origen. And Origen was heavily influenced by the world system. Remember, as believers, we're not supposed to be influenced by the philosophy of our times. The philosophy of our times is postmodernism and relativism, and a lot of churches are influenced by that. It's always bad. And so you go back to 200, and the dominant worldview was Neoplatonism, and Origen exemplifies that. He thinks of reality on an analogy to the human body of bo- physical body, soul, and spirit, so the literal interpretation has to do with exactly what the words say that 's your physical body. But in Platonism, the physical body was at, at best not not important at worst, anything material was evil, and so you would have another higher meaning, the soul meaning which might have some applicational sense that was vaguely connected to what the literal meaning of the verse was. But then when you got to the higher level, the spiritual meaning, that had nothing to do with the literal text at all. So it basically denies the significance of the literal words and the literal meaning of the text, even in historical passages. So it's really talking about something else, so we can ignore that. So it had horrible consequences for Bible study and theology for the next 1,300 years. It becomes institutionalized by Augustine a century later as the dominant, if not the only view within Roman Catholic theology. So the consequence is nobody is thinking in terms of the literal meaning of Scripture, for 1,300 years, especially when it comes to things like Israel or the church. Now, Joseph Trigg, who wrote a biography on origin, states, the fundamental criticism of origin, beginning during his own lifetime, was that he used allegorical interpretation to provide, notice, specious. That means empty or vacuous or uh, meaning of uh, Hugh's allegorical interpretation provided specious justification for reinterpreting Christian doctrine in terms of Platonic philosophy. His influence was monumental, still is, in many areas of, of Christianity. Ronald DeProse, in his book on Israel, said an attitude of contempt toward Israel had become the rule by origin's time. The new element in his own view of Israel is his perception of them as, quote, manifesting no elevation of thought, unquote. It follows that the interpreter must always posit a deeper or higher meaning for prophecies related to Judea, Jerusalem, Israel, Judah, and Jacob, which he affirms are not being understood by us in a carnal physical sense. Now, what does all that mean? I'm just demonstrating what happens in history is you get away from the literal meaning of the word. We believe in a historical, grammatical, exegetical understanding or interpretation of the Bible. Literal means that we take the words, as we go back to the golden rule, we take the words in their normal meaning and their normal usage. Grammatical means that we pay attention to the structure of the sentences, how the words fit together, that's grammar and syntax. And that's very, very important. And we're going to understand this, uh, have to understand it exegetically, not just in terms of of the individual words, which was a real problem for a while, but also how they're put together. A simple example is that you can look at a phrase, and you can do a word study on what kingdom means, you can do a word study on what God means, but when you put this together as the phrase, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, it's more, it has a meaning of its own. Phrases have their own meaning. But until we really got into the period of computer analysis, it was extremely difficult to do analysis on biblical phrases. You have a concordance that just lists words. To try to find all the phrases where you have, uh, all the places where you have the phrase kingdom of God uh, might be easy because you just have to look up kingdom. But if you wanted to find all the places in the Bible where love, faith, and uh, hope were used within 10 words of each other, it would take you a number of hours of detailed study in a concordance With with a computer. You get the answer in about a half a second. And you realize that there are certain connections of phrases that, that are, uh, that are very, very, uh, important. So what happened under allegorical interpretation was, for example, uh, the literal thing, such as Israel crossing the Jordan to go into the promised land is allegorized so that the Jordan River has nothing to do with the Jordan River. It's crossing in from this life into heaven. And the promised land is heaven. It's not the literal land, the literal real estate that God gave, gave to Israel. So the result of that, as we saw in the last quote, is that Israel no longer means the literal physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but is just a term for God's people in general. And the word church no longer refers to those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ who make up the body of Christ in the church age from 33 A.D. until the rapture. That's a distinctive body of believers that are distinct uh, from Israel. And so as a result of this confusion, the church, in allegory, began to take on all of the forms and terms of Israel in the Old Testament and applied them to the church and to Christianity and to the Christian way of life. So that you had words like altar. The altar was, in the Old Testament, is where a sacrifice was made. And so now in the Roman Catholic Church, what developed over time was that the front of the church was the, became the altar. And then they would uh, uh, literally think of Christ's blood and body and not the symbols that were there and so that uh, communion wasn't a memorial. It w- became the mass. And so Christ is sacrificed on the altar by whom? By a priest. Not a pastor, not an apostle, not any of the terms unique to the church age. But you have Christ being sacrificed on the altar by a priest. They're using the Old Testament as the pattern for understanding everything in the church age, which is totally wrong. Christ was the, was the end of the law. And so spirituality, our spiritual walk is redefined as obeying commandments like the Mosaic law. And so they're bringing the Mosaic law or a lot of aspects of it into the church age and spirituality so that spirituality becomes defined in terms of, of legalism. And this makes a, a huge difference in how people would approach, the, uh, uh, approach spirituality. And this is what was seen for 1,300 years. Nobody has a clear understanding of justification by faith. Nobody has a clear understanding of the life of the believer after justification. And they have a real problem with ongoing sin. And one of the problems that we have is we're born with a sin nature, and it produces morality as well as immorality. Most people think that the sin nature just produces immorality. But the Pharisees had an unacceptable righteousness before God. That's why Jesus told his disciples, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. But they were very moral. They prayed six or seven times a day. They gave alms. They did all kinds of things. They were fulfilling the letter of the law without the uh, the spirit of the law. But then when we get to the Protestant Reformation, there's a shift that takes place in interpretation. There's still a lot of holdover, though, with this identification uh, with Israel, and that affected um, uh, Lutheranism, affected Calvinism, and uh, a few other Uh, of the trends that came out of the Reformation period. But they understood at, at a theoretical level the importance of literal interpretation. Martin Luther, who was the first reformer to be known, he said, "...when I was a monk, I was an expert in allegories. I allegorized everything. But after lecturing on the epistles of the Romans, I came to have knowledge of Christ." For therein I saw that Christ is no allegory, and I learned to know what Christ is. He went on to say that allegories are empty speculations and, as it were, the scum of the Holy Scripture. Luther told it like it was. Origen's allegories are not worth so much dirt. To allegorize is to juggle Scripture. Scripture allegorizing may degenerate into a mere monkey game. And allegories are awkward, absurd, inventive, obsolete, loose rags. The problem is that he still used allegory to interpret prophecy. William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English and was burned at the stake for it in 1536, said that Scripture has but one sense, which is the literal sense. So he's in the uh, early... Uh, one-third of the uh, of period of the 16th century. Now, my point in all of this is by the end of the 16th century, you start developing a literal interpretation, and so there's a return to premillennialism because they were taking things literally. So here we have a chart of the church age, tribulation, millennium, and eternity as we look at it. This is premillennialism that Jesus Christ will return to the earth literally before the thousand-year rule and reign on the earth. And then the millennium ends with the great white throne judgment. Pre means that he comes before the millennium. The second view is the view that dominated because of allegory and is still very prevalent. It's the view of of Reformed Calvinism, and it's the and so is post-millennialism, the next one. And so here we have the church age, but the millennium is spiritualized, it's allegorized, it's a spiritual kingdom. And so we are living in the kingdom now. How many times do you hear people say, let's do this for the kingdom and that for the kingdom? But we do it for the church, the body of Christ, if we understand Scripture correctly. We don't do it for the kingdom. We're not there yet. And so th- this age will end with the second coming of Christ, and then we go into eternity. The first uh, resurrection is spiritual at the time of our conversion. You didn't know that when you trusted Christ, you were resurrected to new life. Then you have postmillennialism. See, amillennialism and postmillennialism basically are the same, except postmillennialism says that there's continued progress until we bring in the church through the Holy Spirit, and then Christ will return after the kingdom has come in. Other than that, it is um, other other than that it is the same as as amillennialism. So once you return to an understanding of literal interpretation. Then you start seeing these distinctions, that Israel is distinct from the church. You believe in a literal interpretation. And these are two of the three key factors in understanding dispensational theology. You have a consistent literal historical interpretation, and you believe in a distinction between Israel and the church. And a man by the name of uh, Dr. William Watson wrote a book, Uh, He was a great historian. He was the kind of nerdy person who would take his summer vacations and go to England and spend all of his time in dusty old libraries at uh, obscure universities, reading through 17th century Puritan sermons. And so the result of his study was a book called Dispensationalism before Darby. Now, this relates to a second thing that's come up is that there are these Um, a book that's been written called The Decline and Fall of Dispensationalism, and uh, there's a YouTube video, and there are these attacks, but the attacks always are the same. It's that Darby invented dispensationalism, Darby invented dispensationalism, and they ignore all of the scholarship of the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Center for the last 34 years because it doesn't fit their model. And so they continue to trot out the same old arguments that have been demonstrated to be wrong. Bill Watson's book show, was entitled Dispensationalism Before Darby and shows how all of the main ideas were there. He, unfortunately, he died. It was in God's timetable, but he had not yet finished his book on dispensationalism before the Reformation. And But there, the, some of that information is still up on the pre-trib website. In the early 1830s, an Anglican, an Anglican clergyman by the name of John Nelson Darby had a, a, a terrible accident, broke his leg, was laid up for several months, and couldn't do anything but read his Bible. And according to him, he came to understand, you know, this distinction between Israel and the Church. He came to understand the significance of the Church, and he began to take these ideas that were out there and had been out there for centuries and to systematize them. He didn't invent it, he just organized it. But what you will hear from people is that he invented it. They go to Darby, they hate Darby, and they attack Darby all the time. So we have to be uh, aware of, of this. And so dispensational, his, his uh, views began to be taught here in America. Some say that possibly they sprang up here at the same time, independent of Darby, and that impacted the thinking of Schofield, and the impacted the thinking of Lewis Berry Chafer. Chafer, in 1918, wrote a book called He That Is Spiritual. Now, I don't remember seeing this quote before. I looked in my copies of the book, and I don't even have it highlighted. I don't remember ever citing this quote before, but I may have. Years ago, when I wrote paper, wrote some journal articles, but I have no memory of this, but... See, people can come to the same conclusions without stealing it from each other. But I don't, I don't know whether I, this impacted me or not. You will find this familiar. Chafer wrote, By various terms, the Bible teaches that there are two classes of Christians, those who abide in Christ and those who abide not, those who are walking in the light and those who walk in darkness, those who walk by the Spirit and those who walk as men those who walk in newness of life and those who walk after the flesh, those who have the Spirit in and upon them and those who have the Spirit in them but not upon them, those who are spiritual and those who are carnal, those who are filled with the Spirit and those who are not. All this has to do with the quality of the daily life of saved people and is in no way a contrast between the saved and the unsaved Where there is such an emphasis in the Bible as is indicated by these distinctions, there is a corresponding reality. Outstanding statement. No person who holds to a reformed view of the spiritual life would agree with that. Theology makes a difference. We have to understand these things. So, as we wrap up, I just want to point out one thing as we come to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2 is the birth of the church. You have the disciples. It's probably the 11 plus Matthias, uh, yeah, Matthias, and they gather together at the Temple Mount on the southern steps of the temple, and this occurs. Some people think it's 120, but, but if you read the text, 120 were there 30 days earlier, or 10 days earlier when Christ ascended. And so now, you have um, you have just the twelve. Just the twelve. So suddenly there came from came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So they're seeing this this uh, apparition over each one of them. And then it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the key word I want to look at is the word with. They were all filled with the Spirit. That indicates content, which is very likely. Now, here's another quote from John Walvert. John Walvert says, The Scriptures bear a decisive testimony that the filling of the Spirit, notice, he didn't say with the Spirit, I'm just pointing out the problem with this preposition, that the filling of the Spirit is a repeated experience. You've probably heard that many times. It is, but the examples they give are not of an Ephesians 5.18 filling. The early church was filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.4 and Acts 4.8. Peter is mentioned as again being filled with the Holy Spirit, and the entire company gathered at Jerusalem to hear Peter's report of his encounter with the Sanhedrin, are again filled with the Spirit in Acts 4.31. Stephen, originally chosen a deacon because he was filled with the Spirit, is revealed to have been full of the Holy Spirit immediately before his martyrdom, Acts 7.55. Both Paul and Barnabas are found filled with the Holy Spirit at widely differing periods of their lives and gives references. The evidence for the experimental, that means your experience, Of the filling of the Holy Spirit is fully sustained in every instance. Now, what's the problem with this? The problem with this is that the Greek verb here is pimplemi, and the Holy Spirit is in the genitive case. So people often say this is the same as as Ephesians 5:18 but in Ephesians 5:18 the word the verb fulfilling is plerao and the spirit is in the dative case these are not talking about the same thing see there's the difference plerao and pimplemi have a different sense and a different usage People will look at the fact that they both go back to the same root word historically, but that's the etymological fallacy. Word meaning is determined by usage. You hear me say that all the time. And pimplamy is used differently than pleirao. And so we're going to have to look at this so you don't end up confused. Dr. Walvard, bless his heart, was confused. They didn't, and he knew Greek. Now, he got that from Chafer, but Chafer didn't know Greek. He has an excuse. But Walver didn't have an excuse. They just assumed these words were synonymous, but they're not used in synonymous concepts. So we have to look at the significance of those words. And uh, actually, my conclusion is that they re- they represent two different ministries of God the Holy Spirit. Pimplamy is always used before somebody says something or writes something. It has to do with something related to the inspiration by the Holy Spirit. Playrao is also a repeated experience, but it relates to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. They're not the same thing. Acts twenty twenty nine to thirty one. Paul goes to Ephesus and has a meeting with the elders. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, this is the direction to pastors, watch and remember, uh, watch these things, because there will be these men who come up, wolves in sheep's clothing says, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. That's what the pastor does, is to prepare people. So part of the qualification for an elder in Titus 1.9, elder or pastor, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. This is a big, huge area of confusion, and you may not have been exposed to it. You may be sitting here and always sat in congregations that had it right, but you'll be asked questions, and I'm asked questions. And like I said, I've had three or four people in just the last couple of weeks who have called me up and said, you've got to write a response. I think you're the only one who can. I'm not. They've all, and I told everyone. I said, "Look, if you just go to the pre-trib website, there are dozens of papers that con- that that give you the truth on every one of these false affirmations that are being made, or false accusations that are being made against dispensationalism." But they're totally ignored. That's a great debate technique: D- ignore the evidence that doesn't agree with you, and that's what they do. But the data is out there. But it needs to be taught to people in the pew. Because they're the ones who get hit with questions. I get hit with questions from people in the congregation who text me and say, okay, I'm talking to my neighbor. What what do I say about this and what do I say about that? That's the job of the pastor is to train and equip the sheep to don't be quite as stupid as sheep are inclined to be. That includes pastors as well, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at this thing, to really come to grips with what these things mean about the Holy Spirit in our spiritual life, to walk by the Spirit, to be filled by means of the Spirit. How, how, how has that happened? What, what takes place here? What are the characteristics? And, Father, there's such a level of confusion in the church at large that we need to take some time to, to clarify and to show just exactly why what we say is a better understanding of your text. And so, Father, we pray for clarity. We pray that, too, that if there's anyone here that's never trusted Christ as Savior, this has nothing to do with how to get to heaven or how to be righteous. What this has to do with is how a person who has been declared righteous or justified, how they live, how they think. We're talking about how someone who has trusted in Christ as Savior is to live and how they are to conduct their life. And so, Father, we pray for anyone who's listening who may have never trusted Christ as Savior, may have always sort of heard the gospel, but they never really thought, yes, I believe that, and that's the issue in salvation. Do you trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins? And if you believe that, at that instant, God makes you a new creature in Christ, and you are guaranteed an eternity in heaven. And so, Father, we pray that you would make this gospel so clear to people who need it. And for the rest of us, just be reminded that we live our life based on grace because the life that we have was given by grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.